It's been a while since we've been in Exodus. Over Christmas, we walked through Matthew 1, 2, 3, and 28, the Great Commission. So I want to take some time this morning to review. But our passage for this morning, as uh, Brother Aaron read, is Exodus 25, 1 to 9. 9 is more of a hinge verse, and so that, we're not going to get into 9 as much. That'll be next week, but 1 through 8 will be our focus. Um, the title, 5 Principles for God-Honoring Worship. And the big idea, worship is grounded in the glorious promise of God's presence. Worship is grounded in the glorious promise of God's presence. Now, let me ask a question. Who has a job? Okay. Um, Jobs don't just fall into your lap. Maybe they do sometimes, but... Typically, a job begins, well, you could say with a need, but a job description, okay? And what makes a good job description? Well, hopefully you're going to see pay, okay? This is what the job pays, uh, benefits, paid time off, things like that. But what am I missing? What does the job entail? I mean, you're not going to work a job unless you know what it is and what it entails. What, what are my responsibilities going to be? And, and do I have the qualifications to do said responsibilities. If not, I I probably shouldn't apply. Like, I uh, am not qualified to work for NASA. I I could take out the trash, but I'm not a rocket scientist. Okay, so if that was a job presented to me and I had to know advanced math, um, I'd be in trouble. They'd be in trouble. So again, what makes a good job description? Well, it it better entail what's being asked of you, right? I mean, what am I going to be doing who am I? Who's responsible for me? Who do I report to? But what am I doing? Like, wh- what does this job entail? According to Scripture, what is the believer's job description? What is our vocation? Yes, to worship. God's people, those who trust in Jesus Christ, are called to worship. Now, we were made to worship. Worship is, in fact, our creative purpose. Everything exists for the worship of God, but because of the fall, we abandoned our creative purpose. Our call, our vocation, our job was abandoned at the fall. However, in Christ, praise the Lord, this vocation has been restored. But what does it entail? Okay, What does it entail? And that's what we're really going to look at this morning. What does it mean to be a worshiper? What does being a worshiper of God entail? Now, as I promised, it's been a while since we've opened up Exodus. What's happened up to this point? Okay, We're over halfway through the book. There's 40 chapters in Exodus. We're in chapter 25. What has happened? What is the context? What has happened up to this point? So I want to take about six minutes to review. Recall the title of our series. What are we calling this series? You see on the marquee when you drive by throughout the week, Rescue the Glory of God in Exodus. Exodus is all about a holy God rescuing an unholy people so that his power, his faithfulness, and his grace might be displayed before the world all for his what? For his glory. All right, so this is going to be quick. I want to quickly recap, review Exodus chapters 1 to 25. Really 1 to 24, because we're in 25 now. All right, so in chapters 1 to 3, we have the problem. 
Israel, God's people, they're slaves. They're being harshly mistreated in Egypt. So we have the problem, chapters 1 to 3. We have the cry for help. And we have the Lord's response. He hears the cries of his people. He promises to provide rescue. And he raises up a deliverer in Moses. That's the first three chapters. That's a lot. And then we get to chapters 4 to 12. God, in these chapters, chapters 4 to 12 of Exodus, gives assurance. He gives assurance for his rescue. He reveals his mighty power, and he judges Egypt and its false gods through the the plagues. Then he provides, really the climax of that section, he provides a substitute for God's people in the Passover lamb. And then we get to chapter 13. In chapter 13, we see that the Lord is present. He's present with his people in the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. And then in chapters 14 and 15, we see the parting of the Red Sea. That's a pretty cool chapter, or chapters. In chapters 15 to 17, we see the Lord defeating the enemies of God's people. God fights for his people. Chapter 17, I'm sorry, we just did that one. In chapters 18 to 24, we see the gracious provision of God's instruction, his word for his people. And then in 25, where we've landed today, we see preparations being made for the Lord's place amongst his people. God is going to dwell amongst his people. And, And really, guys, that is everything. That is the main theme of Scripture, God being present with his people. That's how things started off in the Garden of Eden. That's the end of the story as well. And everything in between is what God has done through his Son to make that possible once again. Amen? You know, I love alliteration. You know that. I got like 17 Ps to summarize chapters 1 to 24 of Exodus. I thought this was helpful. It was for me. It's a good mnemonic device, so let me count the P. It's actually 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9. That's not too many. 9. All right, so to summarize, Exodus 1 to 24, we have promise, followed by plagues. Next, Passover, presence, parting of the sea. I like this next one. Oh, no, the second, after this one. Provision, right? He provides for their physical needs pulverizing enemies. That was a good P. Precepts, which is the gift of his word, the law, followed by place. One more time. Again, this is summarizing by P's, Exodus 1 to 24, promise, plagues, Passover, presence, parting of the sea, provision, pulverizing enemies, precepts, and place. And the place would be a movable temple or tabernacle in which God might dwell amongst his rescued people. Okay, that's a lot of grace. Were any of these things deserved? Rescue, provision, presence, precepts, pulverizing of their enemies? No, this is all grace. And what is the appropriate response to all this grace? Again, the Lord promises to save his people. He saves his people. He promised he'd do it. He does it. 
And not only does he save his people, for that would be enough, he saves them graciously, but he provides them with his presence, right? Pillar of fire, pillar of cloud, food and water, these physical necessities, his precepts. He gives them his word, showing them how to live both vertically and horizontally. And he gives them a place for him to dwell in their midst. The appropriate response to all of this grace is worship. Worship. That's the point of the sanctuary or tabernacle. It was to be a place of worship, a place of provision, a place of sacrifice. It was where heaven and earth would meet, where God would physically dwell with his people for their good and for his glory. It was a reminder, right? And and so again, here we come. God rescues his people. He gives them his word. And now he provides a sacred space in which he might dwell in their presence. This was a reminder of God's desire to be with his people. And ultimately a pointer to the work of Christ, his life, death, and resurrection that would result in uninterrupted fellowship with his people. Amen? So what does our passage teach us about worship? Five principles that I think we can extrapolate from these eight verses. Again, nine is more of a hinge verse. We'll look at more next week. Number one, if you're taking notes, you can fill it out. It's voluntary. Worship is voluntary. It's not coerced, but invited. As one brother writes, God does not force your worship and giving, but he does call for it. He does call for it. The point is this, the Lord cares. The Lord cares for the heart behind worship. And you can't fool God. You can't put on airs. God knows your heart. Uh, A perfunctory, I love that word, right? A perfunctory attempt to go through the motions does not and will not please the king. Yes, we are called to worship the Lord. In fact, that is, as we learned earlier, our creative purpose. We were made to worship God. And yet we're called to worship him sincerely, genuinely, and joyfully. The focus here, the the specific aspect of worship being highlighted is giving. The text literally reads, this is the Hebrew, from every man whose heart impels or compels him. Again, their giving, Israel's giving, was not to be done in a compulsory fashion but from a willing and joyful heart. Now, if we fast forward in Israel's history, let's look at how they gave later on. Amos 5, 21 to 23. I hate, God says, I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps. I will not listen. That was the problem with Israel's giving later on. Their hearts were far from God. Their giving was done merely to appease God. There was no love for God. There was no desire to honor God. They become self-seeking, prideful, and wicked. The Lord knew their heart and thus despised their worship. So when you gather, when we gather, 
But when you gather, when you serve, when you give of your time and your finances to bless the church, is it coming from a heart that exclaims, do I have to? Oh, do I have to? Or does it come from a heart that joyfully proclaims, I get to? You see the difference? Do I have to versus I get to and I want to? The Lord cares about the heart of the worshiper. Do you view your worship as an obligation or as a wonderful privilege and opportunity? Why do I invest in my marriage? Why do you invest? If you're married, why do you? Let me talk to husbands for a second. Guys, why do you invest in your marriage? You know, Haley and I do a weekly date night. We always have. We guard that time. We do a weekly date night. Why? Because I have to? No, because I, I want to. I love spending time with Haley because I love her. She's my wife. I treasure her. It is a privilege to spend time with Haley. I'm compelled to. I desire it. Our worship should be something we long to do because we love the one we're worshiping. So number one, our worship, it's voluntary. Number two, it's sacrificial. It's sacrificial. It's costly. Part of Israel's worship involved giving. In order to construct the tabernacle, this movable temple, supplies were needed. Costly supplies, precious stones. What else? Spices. These things were valuable. These things were expensive. They were not, and if you read that list in our passage, these were not common items. Therefore, in order to contribute to the worship of Yahweh, God's people would have to give sacrificially. Their worship was to be costly. Now, granted, most of the materials that we read about in this list, God had caused the Egyptians to give to Israel on their way out, right? God gave Israel favor with the Egyptians, and yet the Lord required a portion of these things for the purpose of constructing the temple, the tabernacle, his dwelling place amongst his people. And here's, here's what I want us to get. The greater the gift, the greater the worth of the one receiving the gift. Does that make sense? The greater the gift given, the greater the worth of the one receiving the gift. The, the value of the items to be collected was meant to highlight the matchless value of the one Israel was called to worship. These weren't common items. They were costly. They were valuable. Why? Because there's no one more valuable than the Lord. Amen? He deserves our what? Our best. Now, I hope this is a hypothetical. I hope no guy in this room can say, oh yeah, that's me. Because I'll see you after this sermon. I'll find you. Husbands, what would it communicate to your wife if her only Christmas gift from you was that cheap 25-cent toy from a cereal box. It's Christmas Eve. You're pouring cereal for your kiddos at the breakfast table. Little plastic package pops out. And you think, oh, you know what? I forgot this year to get a gift for my sweet pie. I, I think this will work. You wrap it up. You put it under the tree. And that's all she gets from you. Little gifts communicate little value. <laughs> little gifts communicate little value. The Lord deserves our what? Our best. Because there's no one like him, amen? So our worship is voluntary, 
It's sacrificial or costly. Number three, it's thoughtful. It's thoughtful. Our worship of God is not to be cavalier. We don't just kind of throw things together and and hope it works. Now, I love Leviticus. And it might be your least favorite book in the Bible. I don't know. You hear that, you know, oh man, Leviticus is so hard and there's so much detail. Really, where we're getting in Exodus, there's going to be a lot of that type of language, a lot of detail, a lot of minutia. It's easy to get bogged down by the minutia of God's instruction for Israel's worship. There's a lot of detail. Have you noticed that? In these chapters and in Leviticus, there's a lot of detail about how Israel was called to worship God. There's specific measurements to be adhered to, right? The tabernacle has to fit certain measurements. There's a certain order, right? There's a specific order that must be followed. There's specific materials that must be used. And all the detail can be overwhelming, but we mustn't miss the point. What is the point of all the detail, all the instruction, the specific measurements, the certain orders? It's because of the one being worshipped. He demands and deserves a serious and careful approach. Israel did not take worship lightly. If they did, what would happen? Dire consequences would follow. We see this later on in Leviticus 10 with Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu. They offer unauthorized fire ignoring God's specific instructions for worship and what happens to them. Not a slap on the wrist. Not, hey, go to your rooms or you've lost your job. They're struck down. They're killed. An unholy people must follow the holy instruction of their holy God. So again, what does our passage teach us about worship? It's voluntary. It's sacrificial. Number three, it's thoughtful. Number four, it's thankful. It's thankful. This is so important. What precedes Israel's worship? What happens before this? They're rescued. They're rescued. The Exodus. That is the immediate context, and it cannot be ignored. In fact, that is the primary reason for their worship. Every special day, every festival was meant to highlight what? God's rescue. Therefore, their worship must be thankful. It must be filled and covered and basted in gratitude. Their worship was to be an expression of their gratitude to God for his mighty rescue on their behalf. Their giving was a small sacrifice in comparison to the much greater need being met by the Lord, which was what? Their deliverance, their salvation. When we give of our time and our money to serve the church, may it flow from a heart that is grateful to God for the gospel. Now, when it comes to the Lord, there is nothing more despicable, more tragic, more of a travesty than an absence of gratitude to God. Now, what reasons do we have for being grateful to God? Hopefully fireworks are going off in your brain right now. A thousand answers to that question. What reasons do we have for being grateful to God? Well, I want to focus on Exodus because in Exodus, 
Moses really focuses on two things about God. And here are the two things. He reveals two things about God are revealed in Exodus. Now, there's more than that, but these are the two primary things that are brought to light about God in the book of Exodus. First, he's the almighty creator. He made everything. He made heaven and earth and all living things. God made us, therefore we owe him our allegiance, our very lives. And not only that, so not only is God revealed as the creator who made everything, he's revealed as the covenant God, the God who made promises and specific promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The promise to rescue his people, right? The promise to give them a place and the promise to be present with them. And of course, God fulfilled that promise. The proper response to both of these things, God made us, God saved us, is what? Gratitude. Thankfulness. Thanksgiving. Our worship should be marked by gratitude. God made us. Praise him. God saved us. If we've trusted in his son, amen. So, again, what does our passage teach us about worship? It's voluntary. It's sacrificial. It's thoughtful. And number four, it's thankful. Number five, it's God-centered. It's God-centered. At the heart, at the heart of Israel's worship was the presence of the Lord. Moses was being instructed in how to make a sanctuary, a tabernacle for the Lord to dwell in the midst of his people. This was the supreme goal of Israel's worship. This was the supreme goal of their rescue. Why did God rescue his people? So that he could be with them. Amen? They were rescued for his presence. This was the supreme goal of their rescue. God's, and I mentioned this earlier, God's presence is one of the primary themes of Scripture. Let's go back to Genesis 1 and 2. What do we see in Genesis 1 and 2? God is the creator. He makes everything. He makes his image bearers, Adam and Eve, but he makes them to be with him. He gives them a sacred space, a garden in which he plans to dwell with them, God present with his people. But what happens? Adam and Eve sin. They're what? Kicked out of the garden. Sin continues to rear its ugly head. In fact, it permeates everything God made that is good. And yet God in his grace makes a promise to Abraham, a promise which includes what? Not just a great people, not just a great place, but God's presence. And then you fast forward to the New Testament, and what do we see? Aaron, you prayed this. John 1.14, the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us, and we saw it back in Matthew. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. And if you're a part of the church, if you've trusted in Jesus, you have the Spirit. We are God's Spirit-filled people, God with His people. And if you know the end of the story, what do we see at the end of the story? God with his people in glory. Amen? And so everything that happens between Genesis and Revelation is so that God can be with us again. And what happens in the middle of the story? The gospel. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. God with his people is everything, but... Everybody say but. It necessitates something that none of us can accomplish. And we'll come back to this later. For now, let's make sure that we understand the connection between the call to give, the call to worship, and the grounds for that call, namely 
the promise of God's presence. There is no worship. There is no true, legitimate worship without the presence of God. Now pay attention to the flow of our passage. Again, really just eight verses. The Lord begins by instructing Moses to invite the people to make a contribution for God from willing hearts, which include costly materials such as gold, silver, and bronze. But why? Why? What was the purpose of this contribution, namely these valuable materials being collected? We see it in verse 8. And let them make me a sanctuary, that I may dwell in their midst. The purpose of their sacrificial giving, this call to worship, was so that the Lord may dwell in their midst. Now, the the word for sanctuary here, it's a fun Hebrew word. I think we can all say it. Mikdash. Think like, man, I'm hungry, so I'm going to make a mikdash, like McDonald's dash. But that doesn't really have anything, because McDonald's is not my sanctuary. Gross. I love their breakfast. I took Clark there for breakfast yesterday morning for Bible study, but, you know, Texas Roadhouse, however. Anyways, the word for sanctuary, mikdash. It means sacred place. Again, this was always God's plan to create a sacred place, a holy place in which to dwell with his people. And then we have the verb to dwell. In Hebrew, it means to abide or settle down. Again, here we see the purpose of the Lord's awesome rescue of his people. It's so that he might dwell with them. God's presence is everything. Amen? It's everything. Now, we see this later on in Exodus 33. This is really important. Exodus 33. What happens in Exodus 32? It's like the most infamous event in Israel's history. One of them. It's the golden calf. They worship a golden calf right after God rescues them. Moses is up on the mountain talking to God. And what are Aaron and the Israelites doing? They're fashioning a golden calf and they're bowing down to it. And then we get to 33. And 33 is where I want to part just for a minute. After Israel worships the golden calf, God threatens to remove his presence from Israel. And what does Moses do? He prays. He intervenes prayerfully. And Moses' response is telling. Listen to Moses' response. He says to God, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. Don't don't even bother, God. If you're not going to be with us, let it stop now. No promised land, there's no point. Why would he say that? Why, Why would... Why would Moses be willing to give it all up if God's not going to go with them? Without God's presence, hopefully we know the answer, Moses and Israel were nothing. They had nothing because God's presence was everything. It was what made them distinct. There's no point to the promised land without God's presence. Amen? Without His presence... God's people could not do what they were made to do. And only in doing that, which is worshiping God, could true and lasting joy and fulfillment be found. The worship of God, 
their very purpose for existence and rescue, right? They were rescued to worship. Their cause for true and lasting joy and peace and satisfaction depended upon the very presence of God. All right, those are the five principles. Here's the next question. How do we apply these principles today as Christians in the church? What does this look like for us today as believers? First, our worship is to be voluntary. Now, this is really important. Now, catch this. We can worship voluntary. We can worship joyfully. We can worship willfully because of the new heart we have in Christ. This is promised in the new covenant, namely a heart that wants to obey, a heart that wants to give, a heart that wants to worship. That's Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27. God promises, I'll give you a new heart and I'll put a new spirit in you. I'll remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh and I'll put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my law. So we need to examine our hearts when we give. Why? Does your heart, when you give, when you're giving monetarily to the church, when you're giving of your time to the church, does your heart, when you give, provide evidence for conversion, regeneration, evidence for a new heart? If not, pray for that. Furthermore, make sure that your giving, that your giving is coming from a willing heart. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 9, 6, and 7. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly under compulsion, but what? What's the opposite of that? Not reluctantly or under compulsion. Joyfully, willingly. For God loves a a cheerful giver. A cheerful giver is one that has been made alive by the Holy Spirit. One that has a new heart. One that can and desires to obey the Lord. Second, our worship is to be sacrificial and costly. Therefore, we give of our very lives, our time and our resources to the Lord. Why? Because He's what? He's worthy. Let's talk about giving for a minute. (laughs) For some reason, when a pastor talks about giving, many in the church grow uncomfortable. Can't make eye contact. Don't don't look at him. I can't help it. I think I know why. I think I know why. For not all of us, but for too many of us, our money is an idol. We hold on to it with both hands. In fact, it actually has a hold on us, right? So not, not only do we hold on to it, it holds on to us. You know, for many of us, it's our identity, how much we have in the bank account. We're successful if we have a certain amount, and if we don't, we're unsuccessful. We, we're valuable if we have a certain amount, and if we don't, we're not valuable. But as Christians, how dare we reason that way? As Christians, our value comes from being in Christ, new creation. We're the richest of the rich if we know Jesus. Amen? And we must remember that all that we have Every breath that we take, every dollar in our account is from the Lord, and we've been entrusted with it 
for His glory. We're called to be stewards. Amen? And if God is your king and you stepped into his kingdom, then you realize there is no greater investment than that, right? I mean, giving to the king, giving toward his kingdom, the expansion of his kingdom, the fame of his name. That's what I want to give to, amen? Why do we give, you know, if I'm not preaching on a particular Sunday, I'll I'll do the offering at the end, and I try to highlight three biblical reasons for why we as Christians are called to give. I think if you summarized why we give, uh, you could find these three things. Number one, we give because the king commands it. So we give out of obedience. Number two, we give to imitate the king. I mean, I love what Paul says in 2 Corinthians about Jesus, who was rich, yet he became poor for our sake so that we could be rich. He gave himself. He gave generously. And if we're going to imitate the king, we must too give generously. So we give to imitate the king. And thirdly, we give to see the good news of the king go forward. Again, if Jesus is your king, then his kingdom and his mission is of utmost importance. Therefore, you will invest in his kingdom. You will spend both your life, your time, your energy, and your money to see the gospel go forward. Give faithfully and give joyfully. Now, maybe you can say, well, Chris, I am. Praise God, you know, I'm giving faithfully and joyfully of my resources. I'm talking financially. I'm giving to the church. Where are you serving? Are you giving your time? How much time do you spend pouring into the lives of fellow believers to see them conformed more and more into the image of Christ? When we give sacrificially to the Lord both of our money and our time, It reveals who we trust and treasure supremely. Those who give sacrificially trust and treasure the Lord supremely. Amen? Third, our worship must be thoughtful. I think it's appropriate here to talk about what's called the regulative principle. What is that? It simply means that our worship, what we do when we gather, must be informed by what? The latest trends? No. What the world finds attractive? No. What the Word of God says. Our worship, what we do when we gather, must be informed by this book. And all God's people said, amen, our worship must be thoughtful. We don't do anything as a church cavalierly. Instead, we take our cues from the King as revealed in His Word. We see this in 1 Timothy 3. Listen to what Paul says. Verses 14 and 15. I hope to come to you soon. Tim, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. What Paul wrote, inspired by the Holy Spirit, was meant to guide the church's behavior, namely their worship. And with that, along with that, we should come into the presence of of the Lord when we gather in awe and wonder. Amen? That's what it means. Our worship should be thoughtful. We don't just come in. I would encourage you, I would challenge you to make sure you sleep well Saturday night. Why is that important? So that you're not sluggish in the morning, so that you can actually engage your mind and you can think about what you're singing and what you're praying and what you're hearing. 
Let's be thoughtful when we gather, church. Come with expectation. Come excited. Come prepared. Come rested. Because he's worthy. It's true. Fourth, our worship must be marked by gratitude. Whether giving to the Lord financially or serving with our time, God's people in the church, our giving and our serving must flow from a thankful heart. We worship out of gratitude for the gospel, the good news of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for sinners like you and me. We, we give, we give because we've been given new life. We worship because we've been washed by the blood of the Lamb. Meaning, if we've trusted in Jesus, then we're forgiven of all our sin. We're protected against the wrath of God because Jesus bore that wrath in our place at the cross. Again, it should never be, <clears throat> it should never be, oh, do I have to worship? No, man. I get to worship. I get to gather with God's people and sing the praises and hear the truth of the one who rescued me. What joy that I get to worship and get to give to the one who saved me by grace. Fifth and finally, our worship is God-centered. We gather. Why do we gather? We gather to be in his presence. Amen. His presence is everything. We gather to hear from him in his word and to speak back to him through song and, and prayer. We gather because of him. I mean, why are we here? Because of the Lord and his presence. We long for his presence and through Christ we have it. The church, those who trust in Jesus are God's spirit-filled people. In Christ, God is with us. When we gather as a church, we are celebrating that wonderful truth, the fact that because of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, we now have access to God's presence. We can now worship Him in spirit and in truth. And this for our true and lasting joy and for His eternal glory. Amen? God's presence in the midst of Israel stood for God's desire to dwell in ongoing fashion with his people. Again, if Jesus is your Savior and Lord, then you have the promise of God's forever presence. And again, God's presence both enables our worship and is the ground and reason for our worship. Let me say that one more time. God's presence both enables our worship and is the ground or reason for our worship. We can know God and we can worship God because of Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Have you trusted in Jesus? Have you got off the throne? Have you acknowledged that you're a sinner and that He's the only Savior? Have you acknowledged your greatest need, which is forgiveness of sin? And have you looked to the one in faith who can forgive your sin, Jesus Christ? I hope and pray for believers as well that God will use this passage to move you to examine your life and your heart. What were we made to do? What were we saved to do? To be worshipers of the one true God. So ask yourself, let me end with this. Ask yourself, is my worship voluntary? Is it voluntary? Does it come from a willing spirit? Is my worship sacrificial? Am I giving faithfully and joyfully to the church 
for the sake of the gospel going forward, both near and far? Is my worship thoughtful? Is it guided by the Word of God? Is it reverent? Is my worship truly coming from a heart that is grateful to God for the gospel? And finally, is my worship aimed at God and the joy that is found in His presence alone? Do I long to gather with the people of God every Lord's day to hear God's voice in His Word and to speak back to Him in song and in prayer? Am I able to say with the psalmist in Psalm 42, 1 and 2, as the deer pants for flowing streams, so my, my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? And finally, again, why do we give? Why do we give? What's the relationship seen in our passage? It's between giving and God's presence. Everybody say giving. Okay, God's presence. Okay, that's, that's the connection. We give, we give financially. We give of our time to see God dwelling in the hearts of people through faith. Giving is a part of our mission to make disciples. In fact, the Lord uses our giving to accomplish His mission. Let me ask this question, and don't answer out loud. I hope I know the answer. Do you wish to see God dwelling in the hearts of people through faith in Jesus? Do you wish to see God dwelling in the hearts of people through faith in Jesus? Then what should you do? Give. 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 Let's pray. Father, because you made us, and through your Son, in our response of grace and faith, we are made anew, because of those truths, you made us, and in Christ we're newly made. We owe you our lives. We owe you our worship. We owe you everything. And I pray that as a church, we would delight in giving back not just our time, but our finances, our money, to see your mission go forward, to see you, Jesus, dwelling in the hearts of sinners through faith in Christ. Help us to be a church known for its generosity, a church that worships by giving joyfully and willfully, a church that trusts you with what you've given us. God, everything we have belongs to you and you entrust it into our care. It's a stewardship and I pray that we would steward these things well, the time that you give us and the monetary resources that you give us and that we would give of those things for your glory and the good of your church and the evangelization of the world. Father, convict us if we have made money an idol. Convict us if we've become lazy in our worship, if we don't gather thoughtfully, intentionally, with the desire to give you thanks for what you've given us, your very life. Father, I pray that by the Holy Spirit you would work through your word, reveal to us areas where we need to repent, move us, Holy Spirit, to repent, and help us as a church to become more and more like your perfect Son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name and for his glory, all of God's people said, Amen.